Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. This is a Story Hunter Productions podcast. This episode deals with graphic content and may not be suitable for all listeners. It was a crime that gripped the nation. A beautiful wife and mother was found bludgeoned to death in the garage of her suburban home on the outskirts of Toronto. It was July 1973, and a violent murder was not something that the Mississauga police were accustomed to dealing with. But their suspicions soon fell on the woman's husband, a wealthy Hungarian-Canadian developer named Peter Demeter. He was a man who had it all. Family, friends, success, and wealth. But he wanted more, and murder was much cheaper than divorce. Convicted of hiring a hitman to kill his wife, Peter Demeter was sentenced to life in prison in 1974. But being incarcerated was never an obstacle to Peter Demeter's evil plans. He continued his criminal scheming from behind bars. Arson, kidnapping, torture, and even murder. For those he wanted dead, he stopped at nothing to make it happen. I'm Catherine Fogarty, and in this podcast series, I'm bringing you the true story of a man whose hatred knows no bounds. He has been called a master manipulator whose mind is a great reservoir of evil that contaminates everyone around him. And at 87 and crippled by disease, the Canadian Parole Board has refused to release him from prison, saying he still poses a significant threat to society. This is Unrepentant Killer, The Life and Crimes of Peter Demeter. Episode 3, Torn Between Two Lovers. Murder mastermind, Peter Marina Hunt was just 20 years old when she met Peter Demeter at a cocktail party in Vienna in 1964. The daughter of a wealthy Austrian couple, her parents had divorced when she was 10 years old and she was sent to live in a convent. After studying law for two years at the University of Vienna, she eventually dropped out to pursue a career in fashion modeling and acting. 
Soon, she was getting parts in television commercials and low-budget films. The striking blonde easily attracted men, so she wasn't initially impressed by the 32-year-old Hungarian-Canadian who approached her at a party one night. After all, she was used to jetting around Europe on the arm of rich, aristocratic boyfriends and girlfriends. But Peter was relentless in his pursuit of her. From the night they met, Peter told Marina that he loved her and wanted to be with her. In fact, on their second date, he proposed to her. But she wasn't ready to settle down with just one man. She was having way too much fun. She refused his marriage proposal and sent him away. But Peter wasn't used to rejection and spent three days in a hospital in Vienna, suffering from a nervous breakdown. When Peter returned to Canada, he continued to write to Marina, professing his love. He was offering her a new life in Toronto and financial security. He even said he wanted her to be the mother of his children. Silly words and promises, thought Marina. She would never leave Austria, and besides, she had a serious boyfriend. But she wrote back. She would keep him on the hook, just in case she changed her mind about the handsome Hungarian. No need to close the door completely. The following year, Peter returned to Vienna, hoping Marina would be more receptive to his proposal. The two shared an anniversary dinner commemorating when they first met. But later, when Peter discovered Marina was still with her boyfriend, he showed up at her house and assaulted her. Whatever they were, or could have been, was over. A month later, while still in Vienna, Peter caught the attention of another striking blonde model. Her name was Christine Ferrari. The day after they met on a film set, Peter whisked Christine away to his friend's chateau, and within a few weeks, they were sunning themselves in the Canary Islands. Christine was impressed by the ambitious Hungarian developer, who spoke of big plans and a bright future in Canada. And after a short whirlwind courtship, traveling around Europe, Christine moved to Toronto. But... It didn't take long for the thrill of the European romance to be replaced by the realities of life in a foreign country. Gone were the parties and chateaus of rich friends, only to be replaced by a small, shabby apartment on Lawrence Avenue in Toronto. Peter was focused on building his company and wanted Christine there to support him. But Christine had other plans— And while she tried to reignite her modeling career in Toronto, Peter became increasingly possessive and aggressive. Christine was subjected to daily inquisitions about where she had been and whom she had spoken to. As far as Peter was concerned, every man wanted her. And soon, Peter's jealousies did push Christine into the arms of another man. When Peter found out Christine had been unfaithful, he flew into a rage. Christine later showed up at a friend's house with a bloody lip. Peter had beaten her, and she wanted out of the relationship. Her friends offered her the money for a ticket to return to Austria. But 
she stayed. And on November 14, 1967, nine days after her 27th birthday, Christine Ferrari and Peter Demeter were married at Old City Hall in downtown Toronto. Their two witnesses were Peter's friend and real estate lawyer, Jerry Heffitz, and Peter's cousin, Stephen Demeter. Less than six years later, they would be two of Christine's pallbearers. On August 29, 1973, five weeks after Christine Demeter had been murdered, Detective Superintendent Bill Taggart received a strange call at his office. There had been a police shootout in Toronto, and the police had killed an armed prison escapee named Laszlo Epper. When the police searched Epper's apartment, they found a cache of stolen items. But of more interest was a scrap of brown wrapping paper with two names scribbled on it. The first name was Peter Demeter's, and the second name was Police Superintendent William Taggart. What was the significance of that piece of paper? The police didn't know. But for Bill Taggart, the Demeter murder investigation had just turned personal. Laszlo Epper had immigrated from Hungary in 1957 and was soon involved in petty criminal activity. He was in and out of prison for 10 years until finally in 1967 he was convicted of the attempted murder of a Hamilton police officer and sentenced to life. But after six years in Collins Bay Penitentiary, Epper escaped. He stole a car and headed to Toronto. That was two months before Christine Demeter's death. Epper was on the Royal Canadian Mounted Police's most wanted list and had been well known to the Toronto police before his incarceration. He had been a member of a loosely organized criminal group known around the city as the Hungarian Mafia. He and other associates would often meet at the rundown Lansdowne Gym in Toronto's West End. When the police searched his apartment after the shootout, they found various handguns, a semi-automatic rifle, and a silencer. And within hours of his death, the police had traced stolen goods found in his home back to a string of unsolved burglaries and armed robberies around the city. When Sergeant Taggart arrived at the dingy basement apartment at 663 Shaw Street, he wasn't interested in the spoils of Epper's thefts. He was looking for other clues that connected Epper to Demeter. Was Epper the guy that Peter had hired to kill Christine? Taggart sent some of Epper's personal items to the forensic lab for testing and even took the floorboards out of two cars Epper owned to check for bloodstains, but nothing turned up. Why Epper had the sergeant's name and Demeter's on a scrap piece of paper was still a mystery, and it would be a long time before the police discovered its significance. And while detectives continued to investigate every bizarre lead in the case, they also kept the tape recorder going on Peter's phone line. They needed more evidence against him, and on direct orders from the chief of police, money was no object. This was the highest profile case the Mississauga police had ever been involved in, and they needed to get it right. But Peter wasn't singing for the police. 
His lengthy conversations with his cousin Stephen or a few other associates were usually about his perceived ineptitude of the Mississauga police and about money. Former detective constable and primary investigator Barry King. The thing that we really hooked him on was with that tape recorder. He got on. He got onto the phone with the Pomerant uh, a couple of days later, and said, "These the sick down police here." He says, "They they do nothing." And uh, Joe says, "Yeah, sometimes they play dumb. Don't uh, don't talk to them." And uh, okay, okay, and don't. The last thing he said, "Don't talk to them." Twenty minutes later, Peter's on the phone calling us. If Peter wasn't complaining about the police or calling them, he was complaining about money. Peter was obsessed with money. He couldn't stand carelessness and waste. While giving away Christine's clothes after her death, Peter complained about her spending habits and was also heard negotiating a cheaper floral arrangement for her gravesite. And Peter wasn't above criticizing his deceased wife either. In one recorded conversation, he talked about finding her bludgeon to death in the garage and remarked, I never realized until then that Christine had so much brains. For the police listening in, Peter's morbid sense of humor was offensive. But it was still no proof of murder. They needed to keep the tapes rolling. In late November, four months after Christine's death, Peter arranged another meeting with his good friend Chaba Salage. He had lost many people in his life, but he still trusted Chaba. But he was concerned that Chaba had not contacted him since his arrest and wanted to know if he still had his friend's loyalty. Chaba assured Peter that he would stand by him. But Chaba was lying. He had already betrayed his friend. On January 28, 1974, Peter Demeter's preliminary hearing began. Joe Pomerant and Eddie Greenspan were representing Peter, and they immediately requested a press ban on any evidence presented during the hearing. Peel Regional Crown Attorney John Greenwood would be presenting evidence for the Crown, and he didn't wait long to call a surprise witness, Chaba Salagi. Years later, Eddie Greenspan, Peter's junior defense counsel, who would go on to become one of Canada's most recognized criminal lawyers, said he would never forget the look of shock on Demeter's face when Chaba Salage walked into the preliminary hearing. Under oath, Peter Demeter's best friend and confidant revealed the bizarre and disturbing conversations he had with Peter about killing Christine. For over two hours, Chaba Salage told the court about the numerous plans and schemes Peter had devised to get rid of his wife. According to Chaba, these morbid discussions between the two friends had started back in Austria in 1968, shortly after Peter and Christine were married, and continued for years. Chaba also repeated the story of the hired hit on Christine at the Dawes Road house two days prior to her death. 
the hitman had called it off because Christine showed up at the house with Chaba's girlfriend. Peter called Chaba that night, angry he hadn't kept his girlfriend away, saying the bungled hit had cost him $10,000. What Chaba was telling the court seemed outlandish and almost unbelievable. But if what he was saying could be proved, it was extremely damaging to Peter Demeter. But because he had been a surprise witness, Peter's lawyers had not been able to prepare any defense against his accusations. Now they needed to try to discredit everything Chaba Salage had just said. And that's exactly what defense lawyer Joe Palmer had tried to do for the next 10 days. Attacking every one of Chaba's bizarre claims, Pomeran accused the soft-spoken Hungarian of lying to protect himself. Maybe he knew more about Christine's murder than he was admitting. But if what he was saying was even partially true, why had he never come forward to the police to tell them of Peter's murderous intentions? And why had he never done anything to protect Christine Demeter, a woman who had always been kind and generous to him? Pomerant was relentless with his cross-examination, aided by notes passed to him from his client. But Chaba could not be rattled and stuck by his story. And in the end, Judge Jerry Young decided that there was enough credibility in Salage's statements to order Peter Demeter committed for trial. The Demeter murder trial opened on September 23rd 1974, with Judge Campbell Grant presiding. Once again, John Greenwood would lead for the prosecution, and Leo McGuigan would assist. Prior to the start of the trial, Peter's lawyers had submitted a motion for a change of venue. The trial was scheduled to take place at the Supreme Court of Ontario in the town of Brampton. But Joe Pomerant didn't believe his client would get a fair trial in the small nearby town where many of the Mississauga police who had investigated the murder case lived. Plus, local citizens might be prejudiced by the amount of publicity the sensational murder case had already received. Pomerant wanted the trial moved to downtown Toronto, where he lived and worked. And he knew Peter's chances of a fair trial would be stronger with a more cosmopolitan and educated jury pool. But Pomerant didn't get his way, and the trial was moved to London, Ontario, two hours west of Mississauga. In the fall of 1974, 25-year-old rookie journalist Jim Bailey had just been hired by the Mississauga Times as their new crime reporter. And his first assignment was definitely going to be memorable. I think I started in, in the spring of uh, 74. Believe it or not, within three months, I was knee-deep in the Demeter trial, which was kind of an amazing thing for a, uh, potentially, I guess, what they would call a cub reporter or something. So the deal was the Mississauga Times was uh, a, a community newspaper owned by the, uh, the Toronto Star Organization, but still just a community paper with limited resources. I would go down every uh, New Year Tuesday, or when I knew something was coming up, I'd drive down to London and sit in there and, uh, uh, in the court, rather, at the press table. I was rather pleased about it, about it at my age, and uh, sat and watched the trial. I, w- I could only afford to go down there maybe, you know, 
uh, one or two days a month. But I, I, by that time, I had built some strong relationships with the uh, with the cops and with the uh, crowns, uh, John Greenwood and uh, and Leo McGuigan. So it was pretty easy to, to do some catch up or to do some stories that were not necessarily just straight trial coverage, which was at that time being done to death, of course, by all the major media. London, Ontario was a small city of 250,000 people located in rural Middlesex County. It was well known for its university and it had just opened a new modern courthouse. For two sophisticated Bay Street lawyers, defending their wealthy client in a rural town was going to present unique challenges. With their expensive suits and city swagger, Demeter and his defense team stood out in the down-to-earth middle-class city. Joe Pomerant, who was well-known for his aggressive attitude and courtroom antics, simply did not appeal to the small-town citizens of London, Ontario, right from the get-go. He really came off as the slick, slightly sleazy Toronto high-priced lawyer defending this millionaire. His audience was the jury, a jury of Middlesex County people, like, you know, farmers, ordinary working people, whatever. They, this guy, this guy, like, was, he was like somebody who'd arrived from the moon and, or from Mars rather, and was uh, telling them how, uh, how things worked. And they just, they didn't buy it. Plus, you know, they were being inconvenienced. The trial was going on. They had, you know, farms to tend to or, you know, schools to teach at or whatever. In contrast, Crown attorney John Greenwood seemed to fit right into the district of Middlesex County. Wearing ill-fitting robes over a crumpled black suit, the tall, good-natured lawyer projected an air of honesty and shyness. Appointed Crown attorney of Peel Region, which included Mississauga, less than a year before Christine Demeter's murder, Greenwood had never practiced criminal law. And as the murder trial began in the gleaming new courthouse in London, Ontario, the former general practice lawyer had no idea that he was about to prosecute one of the most notorious criminal cases in Canadian history. On the first day of the trial, jury selection began. But it was clear from the first remarks by the defense attorneys that the process was going to be long and arduous. 56 potential jurors were questioned for hours by Joe Pomerant and Eddie Greenspan regarding their beliefs and attitudes towards Jews, Catholics, and people of Hungarian descent. Did they resent the wealthy? And what were their feelings toward a husband who had been unfaithful in his marriage? And how would their judgment be affected if they knew the accused had a $1 million life insurance policy on his wife? Finally, after two days, Demeter's lawyers accepted 12 Middlesex County citizens who would make up the jury for the Demeter trial. In his first address to the jury, Judge Campbell Grant warned the nine men and three women that they were in for a long and inconvenient trial. And his prediction came true early on when the jury was immediately excluded from the courtroom and remained out for over three weeks while Justice Grant considered the potential testimony and evidence during voir dire sessions. In a jury trial, the jury rules on fact, while the judge rules on points of law. 
In a voir dire hearing, points of law are argued with the jury excluded. The longest of these sessions occurred right at the beginning of the trial, when Judge Grant had to consider the admissibility of the secret tapes of Peter's phone calls between July of 1973 and January 1974, and the bug conversations between himself and his former friend Chaba Salage. Reviewing the tapes and transcripts would be extremely time-consuming. And since Demeter and Salage had spoken mostly Hungarian, their conversations would need to be translated. Adding to the issue of translation of the tapes, there was also questions of law. The defense argued that by taping over a hundred conversations between Peter and his lawyers, the police had infringed on the rights of solicitor-client privilege. But the prosecution was counting on the tapes. They knew that their case against Demeter was thin. Yes, they had three strong motives as to why the accused wanted his wife dead. A bad marriage, a million-dollar life insurance policy, and a beautiful mistress. But they did not have any direct evidence linking Demeter to the actual murder. And even with the tapes, Peter had never confessed directly to hiring someone to kill his wife. Nor had he mentioned any names connected to the killing. As Crown Prosecutor John Greenwood would later say, We had less than an airtight case with the tapes, but without them, we had no case at all. While the trial in London remained at a virtual standstill as Justice Grant reviewed the tapes and other evidence, the Mississauga police received another mysterious phone call that would send them on an international search for a potentially cold-blooded killer. A police informant known as Mr. X said he knew who had been hired to kill Christine. Mr. X was in fact a petty criminal by the name of Julius Virag, who was familiar with the Hungarian underworld in Canada. In a secret meeting arranged with Detective Chris O'Toole, Varag said he heard that Christine's killer was a fellow Hungarian nicknamed Kacha, or the Duck. The Duck's real name was Imra Olenik, and by the time the police tracked him down and showed up at his doorstep three weeks later, he had already fled back to Hungary. But his living girlfriend, Maria, was more than willing to tell the police all that she knew. Maria revealed that in the spring of 1973, Imra had come into a large sum of money, which he concealed in a roll of large papers. The money, he informed her, had come from a rich millionaire husband who wanted him to beat up his beautiful Austrian wife. He said a guy by the name of Ferrick Stark had hired him for the job, but the duck double-crossed him when he took the money without harming the woman. Soon after, the duck decided to flee the country. Now the duck and the money were gone, but Maria still had the roll of papers that had hidden the cash, and when she showed them to the police, it was discovered that they were the blueprints of a property owned by Peter Demeter. Maria told the police that Farrick Stark had come looking for the duck and was angry when he discovered he had fled the country. Farrick, Frank, Stark, was another Hungarian. 
He was a middle-aged builder who had come to Canada after serving in the French Foreign Legion. Mississauga detectives had no idea what his connection to the murder case was. But when they sat down to interview him on October 30th, they were surprised to learn that he had already been subpoenaed by Peter Demeter's defense team to appear at the murder trial. According to Stark, he did odd jobs for Peter Demeter. And after Peter's arrest for murder, he told Peter that Christine had once approached him in 1970 about purchasing a gun. She wanted Stark to kill her husband and assured him that Chaba Salage would provide an alibi for him. Stark had turned down her offer. Peter had given this information to his lawyers and they had subpoenaed Stark to testify about Christine trying to have Peter killed. But now, sitting at the Mississauga police station, being threatened with arrest, Stark had a second story to tell. Stark claimed that in 1972, Peter Demeter had asked him to find someone who could arrange for his wife to have an accident. Stark said he would, but he never followed through on the request. Then, at the beginning of 1973, Peter asked him again. This time, Stark told Demeter he found somebody who would do the job. Peter seemed relieved, but he didn't want to know the man's name. Only Stark knew the hired hitman's name, and it was Imra Olenek, otherwise known as the Duck. According to Stark, the hit was to take place at 52 Dawes Road, one of Peter's construction sites. Peter and Christine would be attending a meeting, and Peter would ask Christine to deliver a set of building plans to a man at the address. Concealed within the blueprints would be the payment for the hit. Once Christine handed over the plans, the hitman was supposed to push her down the stairs to her death. According to Stark, the murder plot moved ahead as planned, but something went awry. Christine delivered the blueprints as requested, but then, much to Peter's surprise, she returned to meet up with him. An angry Peter called Stark. They had both been double-crossed by the duck, and Peter wanted his money back. But, in fact, Stark later testified that he had approached the duck for the job because he knew he would never go through with it. According to Stark, the duck was a petty criminal, but he wasn't a murderer. Based on what he had confessed to the police, Stark was looking at a charge of conspiracy to commit murder. But Crown Attorney Greenwood was willing to offer him immunity from prosecution if he agreed to testify against Peter Demeter. As for the duck, he had waddled back to Hungary soon after double-crossing Stark. And according to Maria, his girlfriend... The duck was not in Canada when Christine was murdered on July 18, 1973. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. 
In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Meanwhile in London, Ontario, life had settled into a strange kind of routine for all of the major participants in the Peter Demeter murder trial. Each morning... Everyone would gather at the new courthouse on Dundas Street to begin the day's proceedings. But each evening, the same group of people would all get in their cars and head to the same place. Because the judge, all of the lawyers, visiting press, and some of the Mississauga police detectives were all staying at the local Holiday Inn. And to make the situation even stranger... So was Peter Demeter. Former Mississauga Times reporter Jim Bailey. I don't know how it happened, but I, I'll tell you, it was absolutely bizarre. I mean, I, I couldn't believe it when I was, I was there because they, I think I said it was they, everybody was together. I mean, the, the judge and uh, Demeter and uh, maybe even a few of the lawyers on both sides were on the same floor and they used to run into each other. They even socialized a little bit at night, like nothing in any way improper or anything but like the judge for example would just you know uh eat by himself with his clerk or something but occasionally you know the uh you know pomerat would come over and have a few words with uh, leo mcguigan uh, in in the lounge and, and vice versa but generally the cops of course and the uh, the crown stayed together and the um the defense counsel did but they were all in the same uh, bar you know <laughs> saying hello to each other and stuff and uh, I don't know I just I just found that very bizarre I don't know if any of any other trial like that where all of the uh, all of the uh, actors are residing in the same location during the course of uh, of the trial on the morning of October 15th three weeks after the trial had begun the jury was finally allowed back into the windowless courtroom on the 14th floor of the new courthouse to hear evidence in the trial against Peter Demeter Wearing a double-breasted charcoal gray suit and smart horn-rimmed glasses, the 41-year-old accused sat passively in the prisoner's dock as the proceedings began. Immediately, defense attorney Joe Pomerant 
demanded that the jury be sequestered since the trial was drawing considerable press with more reporters showing up every day. Joe kept making all these motions. And like, you know, one point, or several times, actually, he tried to get the jury sequestered. Okay, so now these people not only have to sit in this trial, but they're supposed to sit in the hotel. Meanwhile, he also had his client out on bail. So if Joe had gotten his way, he would have had a situation where the jurors were were locked up and the accused murderer was walking around free. (laughs) But Judge Grant refused the lawyer's request. He wasn't about to restrict the nighttime movements of 12 ordinary citizens while the accused, Peter Demeter, was relaxing at the local Holiday Inn. When the trial resumed, the prosecution outlined their case, arguing that Peter Demeter had paid an unknown person to murder his wife on July 18, 1973, in the garage of their home. They had 105 witnesses ready to testify, but their first challenge was to prove that Christine's death had been, in fact, a homicide. They knew the defense was going to try to present a theory that Christine's mysterious death had been the result of an accidental fall. Crown attorney Greenwood called five medical experts, including the coroner and two expert pathologists, who all concluded that Christine had died from severe blows to the head. In layman's terms, someone had literally beat her brains out. And sadly, her death had not been immediate. Christine had attempted to protect herself from the attack based on the deep laceration on her left thumb. And she had struggled to breathe as the final blows were inflicted as indicated by the blood found in her lungs. The clothes that Christine had been wearing the night she was murdered were then presented to the jury. A pair of silver slippers, her backless brown velvet gown, and her polka dot bikini underwear. Seeing her bloodstained clothing made her brutal death much more real for those sitting in the courtroom. But despite the strong scientific and medical evidence presented in relation to Christine's horrific death, Joe Pomerant aggressively cross-examined each expert, and by the time he was done, the jury and everyone else in the courtroom had been exposed to every horrible graphic detail of the last moments of Christine's life. Throughout the disturbing testimony, Peter Demeter showed little emotion but did request a cushion for the wooden bench he was sitting on in the prisoner's box. Next on the stand were several police officers and detectives who had arrived at the scene of the crime on July 18, 1973, and who had interacted with the defendant. Constable Pollitt and Sergeant Murray both testified that they found Peter Demeter's reaction to his wife's death odd and unemotional. When told that his wife was dead, he became hostile and demanded to know why she wasn't being taken to the hospital. Constable Pollitt also described how Peter was insisting that his wife had fallen while trying to reach for something in the rafters of the garage. They were suspicious of him right away because, first of all, he wasn't the slightest bit upset. When they started talking to him, like the first thing he was saying was, uh, you know, I think... You know, the, the, the hose is 
uh, stored up there in that shelf up, uh, uh, near this, you know, the roof of the garage, ceiling of the garage. I, I, she must have, you know, tried to climb on the car to go and get the hose, and then fallen off and, and hit her head. But he was offering up his theory of the uh, of the uh, the death uh, before anybody asked him. Based on Christine's horrific injuries, the first officers on the scene knew right away that the woman on the floor of the garage had not died from an accident. But even if she had been murdered, the defense lawyers were prepared to accuse someone else of the crime. They introduced the suggestion that Christine may have been the victim of a sexually motivated attack, since there had been two other murders and one attempted murder not far from the Demeter home within two and a half months of Christine's death. University of Toronto student Constance Ann Dickey, age 19, and another young woman named Netta Novak had both been sexually assaulted and murdered in Mississauga soon after Christine's murder. And another girl, Judith Sheldon, a 16-year-old visiting from England, had survived a similar assault. Luckily, she was able to identify her attacker, and a man by the name of Henry Robert Williams had been charged with all three attacks. Defense attorney Pomerant questioned the investigating police officers at length about how the crimes compared, but they didn't. It was confirmed that Williams had not been in the area when Christine was killed, and the pathologist confirmed that Christine had not been sexually assaulted. The only similarity between the four victims, added the pathologist, was that they were all women. And while the presence of semen had been found on Christine's body, Peter had told the police and the medical examiner that he and his wife had sex on the morning she died. Peter's boasting had potentially derailed his lawyer's attempt to suggest Christine had been sexually assaulted prior to her murder. And while Peter had been happy to share intimate details about his and Christine's sex life to the police, the jury was about to hear more revealing details about their troubled marriage from people who had spent time with them. First to take the stand was Vivica Esso, the now 17-year-old teenager who had been visiting the Demeters from Austria during the summer of 1973. Vivica had spent the day with Peter in downtown Toronto while he checked on his building sites, and she had been with him when he purchased a locket for his wife at Burke's Jewelers just hours before Christine was found murdered. Vivica testified about Peter's odd behavior during their shopping trip. The fact that he had insisted on taking the dog, even though dogs were not allowed into the shopping mall, and how he had waved her away from the phone in the jewelry store. It was the prosecution's contention that Peter was on the phone with Christine at that moment, asking her to retrieve something from the garage. A second set of keys to the Cadillac had been found on the front seat, and blood inside the car indicated that Christine had been reaching into the car when she was attacked. While Vivica was a witness for the prosecution, and most of her testimony was assisting their claims, the young woman later dropped a bombshell that would play much better for the defense. Vivica testified that the day before Christine was killed, 
She had told Vivica that she knew Peter was having an affair. Then jokingly, Christine had suggested, wouldn't it be nice to knock him off and get his money? Next on the stand was Dr. Sybil Brewer, who had been with Peter when he found Christine dead in the garage. Testifying for the prosecution, Dr. Brewer recounted her movements on the day Christine died and said Peter appeared to be acting perfectly normal. The doctor, who had known Peter since 1963, described the Demeter marriage as stable. While she agreed that they often fought in front of others, she believed it was more for show than actual marital strife. Dr. Brewer said that Peter was very generous with his wife, buying her expensive cars, jewelry, and clothing, and that Christine was very focused on her appearance because she knew her looks were her strongest asset. Dr. Brewer admitted on the stand that Peter had told her about his recent romantic trip with Marina Hunt and that he was contemplating a divorce. Dr. Brewer said that Christine had found out about the affair, but she had confided to her that she wanted to keep her marriage together since she had already been divorced once. After her testimony on the stand, Dr. Brewer and her old friend Peter Demeter went for lunch. Another witness who had spent time with the Demeters also testified. Lila Dayaram, their former housekeeper, said that working in the Demeter home was difficult because Peter was always yelling at Christine. She described how Peter was obsessed about money and kept Christine on a tight household allowance. Christine had to provide receipts for everything she bought and would often take receipts from shop floors to appease her husband. Lila said Peter was mean towards Christine and on one occasion he told the housekeeper that his dog, Beezlebub, would inherit his entire estate. But Christine would get the color television because the dog didn't watch TV. Lila Dayaram had stopped working for the Demeters in June of 1973, one month prior to Christine's death. She now lived with Peter's former friend, Chaba Salage, whom she was engaged to marry. And now Lila and her fiancé were both under police protection. As the trial continued, the press coverage intensified with each new piece of salacious testimony. Images of Peter Demeter arriving to the court, accompanied by his beautiful mistress and his high-priced lawyers, kept the media's attention alive. Then, on October 17th, the Toronto Star and the London Free Press published a provocative photograph of Peter Demeter's Austrian mistress. The photographs of Marina Hunt showed her wearing the bottom half of a skimpy bathing suit while holding her arms across her chest to cover her breasts. Pomerant and Greenspan launched a strong complaint against the two newspapers and called for an immediate mistrial. Justice Grant dismissed the defense lawyer's objection, saying the picture contained nothing that you wouldn't see on the beaches of Lake Huron. On Friday, October 31st, Crown Attorney John Greenwood advised the court that the prosecution had important new evidence that it wanted to present. Immediately, the jury was dismissed, 
and the lawyers for both sides followed the judge into his chambers. Those who had packed the courtroom, including a group of high school kids from Mississauga, were disappointed the court proceeding had been canceled. And Justice Grant said he would not make a ruling on the new evidence until Monday morning. Inside the judge's chambers, Crown Prosecutor Greenwood revealed the potential new testimony from Frank Stark and the existence of a hired hitman nicknamed The Duck. Naturally, the defense objected to the introduction of Stark's testimony about the earlier plan to kill Christine. Pomerant was furious, but Justice Grant was quickly tiring of the lawyer's constant objections and trivial motions. On Monday, November 4th, Justice Grant ruled that he would allow the testimony of Frank Stark about what came to be known as the Dawes Road murder plot. And the new explosive evidence had additional repercussions. On the same day, Judge Grant revoked Peter Demeter's bail. That evening, Peter wouldn't be having cocktails with Marina in the lobby bar at the Holiday Inn. His new home would be a cell in the London jail, a dank, 100-year-old Fieldstone prison. But maybe it was time for Peter to get used to a different lifestyle, one that came with much smaller, less luxurious accommodations. On the next episode of Unrepentant Killer, The Life and Crimes of Peter Demeter, Peter Demeter's mistress, the woman he apparently killed for, finally takes the stand. But what will the jury make of the Austrian beauty? She looked absolutely plain. She was kind of a, a, a thin woman with uh, her hair pulled back, and uh, I guess she let it go, revert to its natural color. It was kind of a dirty blonde kind of thing, and she, you know, was wearing slacks and just a you know nondescript blouse and stuff. And uh, uh, you kind of looked at it and go, "What? This is the femme fatale." And with Peter's bail revoked, will she stand by her imprisoned lover? The word went around, and I think it was in. Uh, I think it was in Peter's, or in the book about Peter, that actually by person, I know that she actually had a, a bit of a fling with uh, one of the uh, reporters uh, when Peter got put into custody. <laughs> I, 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 know, I have a name, but I, I don't think it would be fair to use it. I don't even... And with startling new evidence about a hired hitman nicknamed the Duck and a sinister murder plot against Christine Demeter, Will the defense be able to change their strategy in time to save their client? That's another thing that Joe made a mistake about was he, uh, because the trial was so long uh, and the investigation was ongoing, they uh, brought in these guys like uh, Caxa and, and whomever that, that weren't you know, on the radar at the start. And how will the Middlesex County jury react to a bizarre parade of witnesses, including a notorious gangster? But... Despite the testimony of some of the most unusual and memorable witnesses, will justice ultimately prevail? I always try to remind myself that this was still a murder. There's still a young mother that was, uh, you know, lying there in a pool of blood uh, with her little kid sitting in the next room. Now, not even knowing that, you know, of course she wouldn't, but she's three and a half. But, uh, you know, without any sense that she just she lost her mother for forever.
Unrepentant Killer. The Life and Crimes of Peter Demeter is written and produced by Catherine Fogarty. Audio production is by Daniel Borgers at Borgers Music. A special thank you to Jim Bailey and Barry King. This is a Story Hunter Productions podcast. Visit us at storyhunterpodcast.com and sign up for our newsletter to get more information and updates about new podcasts. And please check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.